a trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. I do appreciate you being part of my audience. Whether you're a longtime listener, longtime wrong thinker, or just dipping your toe in the water for the very first time. It's all about questioning the narratives that are being beamed at us 24-7, learning to boldly and confidently think for yourself, which means you don't have to believe a word that I'm telling you. You ought to be questioning everything, including what you hear coming out of my mouth. I have some great sponsors who make this show possible. How do they do it? They keep the wolf away from my door so that I can focus on finding some of the best commentary and some of the best articles to shed light on what's going on in the world around us, not to make you fearful, not to make you angry, not to to cause you to be enemy-driven, but to give you a clear, no-crap assessment of what's happening and then encourage you to make whatever difference you were born to make. I know it sounds like a lofty goal, but believe me, there is peace in living your life with purpose. These sponsors include great sponsors like Dixie Chiropractic. You can find them at DixieChiro.com, HSLAmmo.com, SewingAndQuiltingCenter.com, MonticelloCollege.org, LifesavingFood.com, Garage Door Pros, which actually their their web address is garagedoorproservices.com, and of course the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. I'm also going to invite you, for reasons that I will announce a little bit later in the show, to subscribe to the podcast version of this program. It's a very simple thing. You go to my show uh, website, which is thebrianhydeshow.com, and you can just click on subscribe. Every time a new episode drops, you'll be notified, and then you can listen to it at your own leisure. Well, let's dive in, shall we? Got some fun stuff to cover today. In fact, I'm going to start with a topic that is kind of near and dear to me, just because it's a skill that most of us, in fact, I would say many of us, never thought we would need as adults. And that is how to survive attacks by online trolls. Now, look, I understand not everybody sticks their neck out and, you know, puts opinions out there on the Internet that is going to invite either the cancel culture mob or otherwise just trolls to, to start responding. But... There's truth in this, whether you're doing it online, whether you're doing it in person, a letter to the editor, whatever it may be. It is impossible in this day and age to stand for something without taking flack for it. You just can't. That's, it's where we are as a culture right now. It's where we are as a society. I'm not saying that, you know, it's a terrible thing. I'm just saying it's a reality. So we got to learn how to deal with it. And I've got a great article here from Megan McArdle. This is from the Washington Post. Megan McArdle says online trolls are best ignored as hard as that is to do. And as I read this, I, I, I reflect on uh, everything that she says here really rings true. I think this is absolutely correct. She starts with a quote from a TikTok influencer, Dutch de Carvalho, who in a recent video said, I don't think anyone really understands how cruel the Internet is until you're on the other side of it. Wrapped in a blanket, sounding perilously close to tears, he continued, Nothing prepares you for scrolling past thousands and thousands of people saying some of the cruelest things that you've ever seen in your life. And I know I could just stop posting, but I feel like it's important. Now, in this case, uh, Ms. McArdle says, 
Look, that's a lot to unpack in 30 seconds of video. But there is, of course, the dramatic backstory so annoyingly emblematic of our era. She says, I don't even have to tell you, do I? Yeah, one of their videos went viral a few days ago, got another TikToker fired, whereupon the Internet retaliated by putting DiCarvello and uh, through, through a taste of his own viral hell. Then there's the wounded shock at the cruelty of viral mobs expressed by someone who just helped create one, and finally the inability to walk away from the screen. Now, this is, of course, a common malady, even among those who aren't being hit by a troll brigade. But it's particularly pernicious when dealing with trolls because it just encourages further abuse. And she says, perversely, almost all the things that people do to try to shut down these kinds of attacks actually ensure that they will happen or that more of them will happen. In this case, uh, Megan McArdle says, look, I've been surviving troll brigades for 20 years, since before social media even. After two decades of death threats, slander and profanity laced suggestions that I engage in improbable sexual acts, I've learned that there's only one effective way to respond to any of it. Don't. It's a rigged game, and the only way to win is to ignore the invitation to participate. Now, unfortunately, we're now discouraged from telling people to do the one thing that works. Saying ignore it supposedly downplays the serious harm these attacks can do, especially to marginalized groups. It normalizes abuse. Instead, we're all supposed to expose the harm, call out the attackers, and press online platforms for better moderating tools. Now, she says this is well-meant, but it's far too optimistic. No technology filter will ever keep people from saying horrible things on the Internet. At best, it can filter out a few of the ugliest words. Nor does it help to point out that trolling is mean. Trolls are not misguided people who accidentally hurt your feelings. No, she says they're actually rage-filled individuals. Rage-filled narcissists, in fact, who want two things. They want your attention and your pain. Any response you can think of just gives them what they want. When you argue, they rejoice that you care about their opinion. When you complain that it hurts, they revel in your agony. When others leap in to explain how traumatizing this all is, they're even more satisfied. Now they have everyone's attention. So the only way to punish trolls is to refuse that they exist. Refuse to acknowledge that they exist, rather. Better yet, don't care. Now, of course, she says, I understand that it takes unusually thick skin or long experience to shrug off so many people saying such amazingly awful things. But for the inexperienced, there is a technology hack that lets you simulate not caring. You ready for this? Turn off social media, and if necessary, email and your phone until the trolls run out of steam. Huh, seems simple enough. If you're subjected to mass attacks, she says you should use this trick. If you see someone else in this position, you should encourage them to take a break, rather than make things worse. Trolls have the attention span of a gnat. If you engage, they'll renew their interest. If you go away, then within a few days, they'll get bored, and you can resume your online life as if nothing happened. Because, in fact, nothing of any consequence did happen. Now, obviously, we're talking about simple trolling, okay, not a cancellation mob where jobs or even friendships are at stake. I kill fascists for breakfast, 451, will not be sitting across the table from you at Thanksgiving dinner. The only way these people matter at all is if you decide to let them. And as long as you don't react, they're just shouting pointlessly into the abyss. Now, it would, of course, be better if they stopped. It's lovely to dream of a world in which no one is ever gratuitously cruel to strangers or where some sort of super filter stops this nastiness before anyone can see it. But we don't have any reliable ways to make nasty jerks into better people. 
If they cared enough about others to make social pressure effective, they wouldn't be spewing bile at strangers. So Megan McArdle says, in the here and now, the best we can do is a collective etiquette of cheerful obliviousness. It may be unsatisfying, it's certainly less than ideal, but it's still better than making ourselves accomplices in their vicious work. I just have to applaud her. She, it took me a long time to learn this, and I used to love to argue online. In fact, uh, I had a friend, and, I, and he and I, would we, we would tag team trolls, not realizing that in the process we were becoming trolls ourselves, but uh, we would tag team people over various issues in online discussion boards or the comments sections of various newspapers and whatnot, and I, I think we literally drove one guy into insanity. I mean, the, the, the posts just went totally off into the netherworld. It was crazy. And by the way, I'm not proud of that. There was, a, there was an awakening I experienced some years ago that said, you know, you're getting pretty good about riling people up, but what are you really accomplishing that's, that's worthwhile? And I got to say, my conscience was stung when I realized that. There's a better way. So I, the only advice I can give you, and I know you didn't ask for advice, so this is worth exactly what you paid for it, but... If you're going to stand for something, just get ready to accept the fact that you will be made to suffer for your beliefs. Now, how much you suffer is going to be entirely up to you because you have a choice as to whether to give credibility, to try to explain yourself to those trolls who will will follow you around and try to, you're wrong, you're wrong about this and you're wrong about that. So in this case, my best advice is speak the truth, speak it with love. But don't explain yourself. The only time I would make an exception for that is if someone is leveling criticism and it's someone whose opinion you actually trust, someone who matters, who's earned your trust, then I would say, yeah, consider what they're saying. Give them some consideration. But all others, let it roll off your back. Let them say what they're going to say and resist the urge to either respond, to try to justify what you've said, or worse, to try to put them in their place. There's a rule of thumb here, and I found this to be very true, and that is every time you respond to somebody else's unkind comment or jab or whatever, every time you rise to the occasion and you give that troll the attention that they're seeking, you automatically add another 24 hours of relevance and life to whatever it is that's being discussed. And that includes criticism of you. So if you want to see it fade into obliviousness, ignore it. It may be hard to do, but that's really the the better way to go. And there's the added peace of mind of unplugging from that dopamine dispenser known as social media. Sometimes it's good to give that a try, too. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Thank you so much for being a part of our growing audience of wrong thinkers. It's a, it's a great thing to stand up for yourself, to challenge the status quo, and to, uh, you know, stand on your own feet, make your own decisions without somebody spoon-feeding you. Now, here, honey, this is what you're supposed to repeat. Can you say it? Ah, what a big boy. What a big girl. Good for you. I know it sounds very condescending, and that's that's kind of how I feel about it, too. It's like, really? You don't think I can make up my own mind on such matters? Well, yes, actually, actually you can. 
So I want to give a quick shout out here to Garage Door Pros. This is a local company in St. George, Utah, but they service all of Southwest Utah, St. George, Cedar City, also Mesquite and Colorado City. This is a company that installs services and repairs garage doors, garage doors that are made in America. They have a very quick response, much faster lead than other companies can give you, including insulated garage doors, uh, commercial service. And I've got a link to their website in my show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. So if you click on that, that'll get you all set up with what you need. Again, that's garagedoorproservices.com. Tell them thank you for being the sponsor of this program. So I read an article the other day about uh, a dying railroad monopoly that just keeps going because the U.S. government has, uh, well, put its weight behind it. You know, I'm talking about Amtrak. And there's a terrific article from Robert E. Wright on the American Institute for Economic, let's try that again, the American Institute for Economic Research, AIER.org website. And it was it's funny, I saw that uh, Robert had, had shared this article, and on Twitter he was saying, holy cow, you know, he was getting a lot of flack apparently, which... In in reference to our last uh, our, our last segment, it's probably a good indication that he's he's on target, or at least he's over the target here. But I wanted you to hear what he has to say. He says the same policymakers who wanted to shut down the American economy for an indefinite period just to save one person from dying with COVID refused to shutter an increasingly dangerous and expensive government-supported monopoly, that being the National Railroad Passenger Corporation, which you and I know as Amtrak. He says, instead of leading the, with substantive policy improvements, America's leaders prefer to mislead the nation with weak virtue signals. Until the Federal Reserve gets inflation under control, though, the only real virtue will be increasing economic efficiency with bold re- reforms, including selling Amtrak to the second highest bidder. The weekend before the 2022 Independence Day holiday, one Amtrak train in California struck a vehicle, killing three and injuring two others. In Missouri, another derailed, killing multiple passengers and injuring many more. Now, look, he says accidents can never be eliminated entirely. But Amtrak's record is poor relative to other countries, especially given its snail rail speeds. Other economically advanced countries sport trains that travel at hundreds of miles an hour with much better safety records. Trains in Eastern Europe are also safer than Amtrak, even adjusted for passenger miles traveled. Robert E. Wright says on a tax dollar basis... Amtrak's overall performance is abysmal. Passengers pay a pretty penny for their tickets, but those traveling the Northeast Corridor routes subsidize those traveling America's vast western expanses. And all Americans subsidize Amtrak through increasing bailouts. Amtrak's leaders learned, for example, they could spend $450 million over 11 years to save Asilo passengers a little over a minute and a half on the Philly to New York run and not get fired for it. Annual taxpayer subsidies average over a billion dollars since Amtrak's formation in 1970 to 71. So why was the Amtrak abomination created at all? And why then? Well, Robert E. Wright reminds us America, after all, once led the world in both freight and passenger rail service thanks to vigorous competition between numerous privately owned and operated railroad corporations. Wilma Sauce who lived from 1900 to 1986, was a PR whiz, corporate bigwig nemesis, and the subject of a forthcoming biography by Robert E. Wright and Bucknell University's Jan Traflett, was a big fan of passenger rail. And as a youth, she regularly traveled by rail between her native San Francisco and her maternal grandparents' home in New York City. Well, during World War II, she commuted between Manhattan and Detroit by rail, and after the war did PR work for Bud, 
a major Philadelphia-based passenger train car manufacturer. She knew the days of passenger rail were numbered, however, after Robert R. Young failed to turn around the New York Central Railroad in the late 1950s. By the early 60s, Sauce railed against railroad executives who flew to their annual stockholder meetings in Chicago. That is ironic, don't you think? Instead of fighting for the long-term health of their industry, many industries, many executives rather, looked for short-term profits. Investors be damned. According to Sauce on her nationally syndicated NBC radio show, Young killed himself after receiving a note from an old widow bemoaning the loss of much of her investment in his flailing railroad. Now, not that the industry's decline was Young's fault. By the early 1960s, railroads faced numerous competitors, especially Eisenhower's heavily subsidized interstate highway system. Nevertheless, certain inner-city passenger rail routes too close, to, too close for planes and too congested for cars continued to make good economic sense. Regulators, though, kept derailing innovation and squeezing railroad profits between ticket price controls and rising costs. The beginning of the Great Inflation accelerated the wreck of the once mighty industry, fomenting the nationalization of its remnants into the Amtrak abomination. That's an interesting piece of history. I didn't even know about this. Now, Robert E. Wright says 50-some years later, the U.S. government has proven itself as incapable of running a railroad as the Soviet Union did. It should deregulate intercity rail passenger rail travel and sell off all of Amtrak to the second highest bidder in a Vickery sealed bid auction. The proceeds, which would be substantial, could be used to plug the hole in the deficit and maybe pay down the national debt a bit. A sale would also free the American people from the expense of subsidizing Amtrak in the future and the shame of its execrable in- existence, rather. The great Brandon inflation, a.k.a. the climate change and pandemic overreaction inflation, promises Americans much pain, especially if more employers do not wake up to the necessity of implementing cost-of-living allowances. But if liberty lovers awaken to the view that no crisis, no good crisis, rather, should go to waste, some regulatory improvements could be in the offing for no other reason than it's currently politically expedient to reduce prices without creating shortages. Robert E. Wright points out during the great inflation of the 1970s, for example, airplane ticket prices in 1978 and brokerage commissions, May Day 1975, were deregulated. Increased competition quickly created efficiency improvements that allowed real price decreases in both industries. So with gasoline prices and airplane tickets currently soaring and lessons about the perniciousness of price controls hopefully learned, Reform of intercity passenger rail could well be in America's immediate future. And while trains are not especially good for the environment, many people assume they're green, also allowing for some of the fake virtue signaling many American politicians seem to crave. Oh, he definitely nailed it on that last one. Now, I don't know. I, I agree with everything he's saying about how, you know, this is, this is being propped up. It's being artificially extended. And, of course, at the expense of the taxpayers, which... I think government and, and most bureaucracies tend to see as, you know, an unlimited resource. Why, the taxpayers will always have money that we can take. That's the part they don't add. But i got to admit, there's, there's a little bit of uh, romanticized, ah, travel by rail. Yes, I'd probably go back to wearing a hat, too, if I was traveling by rail. But, I, you know, it just, it's, something, it's something I haven't done, something that I think I would really enjoy. And this harkens back to when I was a teenager, and I, one of the great privileges was being asked, hey, can you drive us to, uh, to Shoshone, Idaho? Which, if you've never been through Shoshone, Idaho, it is, it's a little teeny spot on the map where the train happens to go through. In this case, Amtrak would come through. 
I had a neighbor who had lived and worked back east for many, many years, and he and his wife would make kind of an annual uh, pilgrimage, rather, to go watch the leaves change, and they would travel the country by train. So at 3 o'clock in the morning, they would have me go drop them off at a little heated shack sitting there alongside the railroad tracks in Shoshone, Idaho, and Amtrak would swoop through and pick them up on its way east. And I know it sounds like a crazy thing, but I thought that was the coolest thing ever, and it's still on my bucket list of things I would like to do. Now, whether it's Amtrak that is running the railroad or not, I think Robert E. Wright makes a good point that a little competition here could open up some really great possibilities and innovation. But to do that, of course, we're going to have to invite government to get out of the way first. That's something I'd really like to see happen. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Also want to send a shout out here to lifesavingfood.com. That is my friend Kendall Whiting's food storage company. I uh, bang the drum a lot for food storage, but I only do it because I know the peace of mind that comes from, from being prepared, from having options, not just with food storage, but emergency preparedness. It's, it's good for, you know, whether, whether we're talking an end-of-the-world apocalyptic kind of scenario or just simply an unexpected emergency that rises, you know, a loss of a job or a sickness or some other thing, a car breaks down. It's good to have options. And if you click on the link that I provide in my show notes to lifesavingfood.com, you will definitely find some things that will give you options in many situations. And it's all about that peace of mind. So we just celebrated Independence Day, of course, uh, the Declaration of Independence. And one of the questions that's on my mind is, uh, does our Constitution need to be amended? At this point, I think I would agree with Joseph Sobrand that whatever the Constitution is, and I do have deep respect for this document, it's not enough to stop the federal government from still doing whatever it dang well pleases. And that's concerning. But should we amend it? I mean, there's some pretty strong uh, advocacy out there still for an Article 5 convention. Well, we need to get people together like they did in Philadelphia in 1787 and fix the thing. And my opposition to that uh, remains to this day. It's not that I don't think people are well-intentioned. My concern is the, the interests that uh, represent the power centers... Um, and and I'm, I'm just I'm going to be blunt here. If you want a constitutional convention run by Mitt Romney types, yes, by all means, go ahead, because that's what you're going to get. Mitt Romney is, is probably the perfect epitome of uh, of what you will get in terms of the delegates that would be sent to fix in air quotes the Constitution. But it, but let's back up just a little bit and ask the question first. Does the Constitution really need to be amended? This is something John Stossel actually took to a number of different uh, lawyers and media people, as well as common people on the street. I want to play a little excerpt of some of his interview with you that uh, I think you're going to find both uh, interesting as well as somewhat encouraging, particularly the answers from the people on the street. Here's what John Stossel has to say about does the Constitution need to be amended? This time of year, we celebrate America's independence and... This document, the Constitution, this made America different from every other country that came before. But 
Is this good enough? It's the best constitution on the earth. I think the forefathers knew what they were doing. Lots of people we asked had no opinion. Have you read the constitution? No. no. Okay. What is the constitution? constitution? I don't know like, what that is. Like the amendments? <laughs> What's that? Um, I think it's like laws. Yes. The supreme law. Old people probably wrote yeah, it. Their dad. And is what they wrote good law today? The idea was right for the time that it was made in. It could use some changes. It's antiquated. Yes, this did accept slavery. Fortunately, the people who wrote this also made it possible to change it. We therefore declare... Of course, change isn't always good. Alcohol's national annihilation by an amendment to the federal constitution. That was stupid. That was people getting real jazzed up about something they didn't need to get jazzed up about. They eventually repealed prohibition. Are there other good changes we should make to make our constitution even better? We asked people, some with legal and political expertise, are there things you would change? Oh, goodness, there's so much. (laughs) Probably add a balanced budget amendment. Would that stop the politicians from bankrupting us? One reason they spend so much is to get reelected endlessly. Could we change that? Maybe term limits. 18-year terms for the Supreme Court. Maybe the confirmation fights would be less bitter and partisan. Others want to take term limits further. Politics should never be the family business. So if your father, mother, siblings, uncle, cousins were elected to federal office, you can't. No more Kennedy clan? No Bush dynasty? You can't get fooled again. I like any idea that limits government power. Term limits might. So would killing the Commerce Clause. It's been interpreted to grant the government virtually unlimited power over the economy. This has included forcing people to participate in federal pension programs, monopolizing health insurance for the elderly, enabling the war on drugs. There's no reason government should have any any authority over commerce whatsoever. I don't know why it's in there. It's got to go. Many people want the Constitution amended to restrain the growth and power of Washington's agencies. The administrative agencies that now infest the banks of the Potomac are both a threat to Americans' liberties and to Americans' prosperities. This permanent bureaucracy, it has to be accountable to somebody. People have different ideas about how to do that. This congressman proposes... Overturning Citizens United so people can't spend millions of dollars in elections, in corrupting elections. So we return our democracy to the town halls and citizen involvement that our founders envisioned. Overturn Citizens United? Limits on political speech usually entrench the insider's power. The main point of the Constitution and the Bill of Rights was to protect the rights of the individual. I would specify more rights. So how about a right to earn a living? How about a right to not have um, the government steal from you? Some of our rights, of course, are already listed, like free speech. But today, many people want to limit that. Being able to speak your mind is important as long as it's not in a way that is going to be long-term harmful to people. Really? Take free speech out of the Constitution? Never take the speech away from the people. I'm glad this man defended even hate speech. If you hate it, somebody else might love it. So as long as there's no action to physically harm somebody, keep the free speech. The founders also included the right to bear arms. Fire! Back 
then you needed them. But now, many people say, we no longer do. We have police officers, we have a military, so do we really need them? No. Others want to strengthen the Second Amendment. Just add a few lines. This means that we can absolutely arm civilians and you can't pass laws restricting uh, restricting the ownership of firearms. The only reason, reason we could stand on freedom is because we got the right to bear arms. We all like a micro-government in our own way. Micro-governments. I like that. And if we need someone governing us, maybe state governments have better ideas. A lot of state constitutions have something called a gift clause. And a gift clause is a prohibition on government subsidies to special interests. And along the same lines, I would include in the federal constitution protections against the abuse of eminent domain that are also found in many state constitutions. Eminent domain lets government take people's property for what politicians consider public use. How did government grow to have so much power over everything? This was designed to limit government's power. Sadly, it's often ignored. I got a copy of the Bill of Rights here. And if you look at the First Amendment, it says that the right of people to peaceably assemble shall not be infringed. And not even libertarians bothered so much to invoke that as to fight the lockdowns and quarantining. The right way to amend the Constitution is just enforce the one that we have right now. Right. Meddling might bring unintended consequences like Prohibition did. Our founders wrote documents on old pieces of paper that were designed to give you life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. I suppose if we were going to change one thing, perhaps they should have done it in bold so more people would have paid attention. Okay, I'm going to stop it there, but it's what a great cross-section of sentiments there. And I realize some of the first opinion, wait, what's this? Uh, I think it's old people wrote it. It's just, you know... Whoever it was who said, and I, I'm sorry, I, I, I missed uh, I missed the name of the person who talked about being your own micro-government. That's really what it was about. That was the gist of what, uh, what the Constitution was allowing was it called into existence a federal government. It described very specifically what the powers of that government would be. In other words, it enumerated those powers. And it also talked about the upper limits of those powers. You know where all the other governing power was left? With the states and the people. And that doesn't mean the states, therefore, should be running roughshod. Although, you know, it's refreshing to see that return to the idea of federalism, which, you know, the the recent Dobbs decision from the Supreme Court seems to affirm. And that is, well, the states are probably better qualified to make these decisions because they are closest to the people. But ultimately, when it comes to governing you, governing your life, The best decisions about governance are the ones that you make at the self-government level. Now, there's a danger in that, though. And the danger is if you just, uh, you know, run with, hey, I can do whatever I want. Come on, kids, it's drag queen story hour. Uh, that's, uh, That's not something that is going to keep you free for a long period of time. People who want to be free have to be qualified to be free in the sense that they they have to to understand the principles the practices of freedom i don't want to sound too much like jack nicholson here but freedom isn't for you if you can't handle it and there are people who will take freedom and pervert it into something that ultimately limits their freedom by painting them into a corner of consequences that are inescapable i know this is a lot to take in But the point here is nobody's better qualified to decide what's best for you than you are. 
The more you govern yourself, the less need you have of somebody on the outside telling you, hey, you should be doing this. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I want to give a shout out here to sewingandquiltingcenter.com. Just a, a thank you to Eric and Teresa Alsop for being sponsors of this program. And to my listeners in southern Utah, I would just ask you, please, if you have need of any kind of sewing supplies, sewing machine, quilting, or long arm quilting, um, these are the folks you want to talk to. They really know their stuff. They're wonderful people besides. They will take very good care of you. And I just I want to express my appreciation for them being uh, long-term sponsors of the program and for, for all the help that they have given me. So, again, for my listeners in southern Utah, please do your part to support Sewing and Quilting Center. They're located at 779 South Bluff Street in St. George, Utah. Wonderful people who have done so much to help keep this program going. So I come back from a couple of days off. Yes, I took a few days to unplug and uh, to to head for the hills, so to speak. And my goodness, somebody blew up, or at least they blew up part of the Georgia Guidestones. Now, I only became aware of these Georgia Guidestones just within the last couple of years. But essentially, uh, I'm going to give you the thumbnail sketch here. This is a monument of some sort that was put up in the 1970s, early 1970s, that seems to very clearly state the the goals of many of the global elites. One of the biggest goals among them being depopulating the world. In other words, bringing the world's population down to a more sustainable number, which I think the, the number they settled on is somewhere around 500 million people. I mean, come on, we're coming up on 8 billion folks here. That's a lot of people that are going to have to get off the planet. How exactly do they, you know, suggest that we we uh, pair the the legend the uh, population down to to a manageable size? Yeah, I don't want to think about that. But that's that's some pretty nefarious stuff, and and it's you know there are different languages represented, but there's there's a very Luciferian quality to to these Georgia guidestones, and and I've heard people say, and I don't know, maybe it's true. I I, I couldn't tell you, you know, with certainty that uh, this is a, a, a great example of hiding in plain sight. These are, you know, the, the global elites putting their plans right out there, in, a, in essence, rubbing them in our faces and telling us this is what's got to happen. Well, over the weekend, somebody with explosives blew up a big portion of that monument. And this is big. It's like, it's like a little Stonehenge. They, they blew up some of these huge granite slabs, and I guess uh, the authorities decided to go ahead and demolish this to just out of safety. They, they said, you know, it's, it's unstable. They had to go ahead and take it down. So it's going to be interesting to see who rebuilds this. And, and it's, it's, it's curious to see who would strike out like that. Now, I'm not above suggesting, hey, maybe it was, you know, the global elites themselves. You know, this is their false flag. Oh, look, we're under attack. Better crack down on the domestic extremists or whatever. I don't know. But it does raise some interesting possibilities. This much I do know. There are some very anti-democratic delusions out there that require population control. In fact, I've got a great article here from J.B. Shirk from AmericanThinker.com. J.B. Shirk says, Watching Democrats react to the fall of Roe v. Wade has made one thing crystal clear. 
they demand that all of us, at all times, live within the strictures of their delusions. He says, for several years now, the political left has been prattling on about protecting our precious democracy while intentionally ignoring Americans' basic constitutional freedoms and and unalienable rights. With its Dobbs decision, the Supreme Court achieved a resounding victory in the name of democracy by returning the legality of abortion back to the people and their representatives in the state governments. Let the people decide. Okay, you can't get more democratic than that. Yet the Democratic Party has descended into paroxysms of rage and madness in its demands that something be done to force all Americans to accept child murder as a sacred right. Senator Elizabeth Warren and Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez want to set up emergency abortion clinics on federal lands, including national parks. That's how important it is for leftists to force everyone else in America to accept only their worldview at the expense of all others. It's not sufficient that the blue states of New York and California can continue killing unborn children. Instead, red state voters must also be forced to participate in child murder. And if their state representatives refuse to yield, then so be it. The pristine oaths of America's national, oases rather, of America's national parks will simply be turned into places of carnage and death. Move over, grizzly bears. There's a new apex predator in the woods. Now, of course, mandatory acceptance of abortion as a sacred right is only the most recent vivid example of how difficult it is for the left to accept any viewpoints not its own. Ten years ago, few Americans would have predicted that today men would be dominating women's sports, elementary school children would be attending drag queen story hour, and students would be charged with sexual harassment for refusing to use plural pronouns when referring to a transgender classmate. There was no Democratic vote held before imposing this new worldview on the public. No great legislative session reflecting the people's beliefs preceded the Democrats' new obsession with transgenderism at every turn. Most Americans went to bed one night quite certain in their understanding of what distinguishes a man from a woman, only to wake up the next day to be told that everything they'd ever learned about basic human biology and genetics was fundamentally unsound. Stragglers refusing to accept the new anti-scientific transgender delusion as scientific fact have been cast aside as bigots or worse, accused of hate crimes. In a perfect example of the synergy between the pro-abortion and pro-trans delusions, a well-known trans educator and abortion superfan encapsulated the left's capacity for tolerating diverse points of view by responding to Roe's demise with a Supreme Court assassination challenge on Twitter. Voila! Accept the new delusions as reality for your own good. Now, J.B. Shirk says, perhaps no issue more succinctly describes today's sharp political divisions than the question of whether individual human life is seen as a blessing or a curse. So while America adjusts to the new reality of a post-Roe world in which the determination of abortion's legality is returned to the judgment of the sovereign state governments and their citizens, it's far from the only debate centered on human life. For instance, everything about the left's new Green Deal, or I'm sorry, Green New Deal agenda to transform the economy from one based on hydrocarbon energy to one hiccuping along on solar panels and windmills centers on the principal delusion that planet Earth is more important than individual human life. Starting families and having children are viewed as selfish acts that only exacerbate humanity's nefarious carbon footprint. As a testament to anti-human greenies' successful propaganda over the last few decades, birth rates around the world have been sharply declining, and the COVID-19 pandemic has only accelerated this trend. 
J.B. Shirk says for the political left, declining births has been welcome news. How could it be perceived otherwise? Overpopulation's been an instrumental part of the global warming, doomsaying dogma for decades. Ever since Paul and Ann Ehrlich's The Population Bomb scared the bejesus out of people in 1968, with predictions of imminent famine and social anarchy in the 70s and 80s, various strains of the environmental movement have gnashed their teeth over the exponential growth of the human species from 1 to 8 billion souls following the technological innovations of the Industrial Revolution. Nearly two centuries before the Ehrlich's dire warnings, British economist Thomas Malthus laid the groundwork for all later demographers when he published an essay arguing that unchecked population growth inevitably leads to mass starvation. Now, what did he see as potential checks that could prevent such a tragedy? Among other things, delaying marriage, forsaking children, birth control, and homosexuality. Much as climate change crusaders take as gospel truth the evil of hydrocarbon energy, the claim that too many humans already inhabit the planet has been an enduring mantra of Mother Earth's most staunch defenders. Population control. Whether seen as the strict limiting of a population's growth or as the strict regulation of a population's freedom, touches every hot-button political issue of today. Will taxpayers be forced to fund abortion? Will female athletes be forced to compete against men? Will citizens be forced to take experimental vaccines? Will Americans be forced to pay soaring gas prices until they either become too impoverished to own a personal vehicle or reluctantly choose to invest in a $60,000 new electric automobile dependent upon an aging electrical grid powered by natural gas and coal? J.B. Shirk says in a truly democratic society, these important questions would be left to the people to decide. But in a society where everyone must accept the Democrats' delusions as their own or suffer the consequences, however, real democracy is the last thing on Democrats' minds. Instead, their ideal government sounds a lot like Chinese President Xi's recent pronouncement that communism has brought true democracy to Hong Kong. Hadn't realized he'd said that, but uh, what an interesting statement. I've got a link to J.B. Shirk's article in my show notes at thebrianheidshow.com. If you would like to sign up to get a copy of those show notes every day that I do the show, you'll notice a big subscribe button down at the bottom of the page. All you have to do is share your email address with me. I will not share it with others, nor will I sell it to other people. What I will do is send you a copy of those show notes with all of the linked articles that you can enjoy and, again, study at your own leisure. I'd also encourage you to... uh, Subscribe to the podcast version of this show so you can listen at your leisure as well. Thanks again for being part of our growing audience of wrong thinkers. This is The Brian Hyde Show. A trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. Thank you so much for being part of our growing audience of wrong thinkers. After all, this is the place where we revel in wrong think. And I appreciate you uh, checking it out, especially if you're just uh, scoping it out for the first time. By the way, just a, a quick announcement for my listeners in southern Utah. Many of you have, the, have had the opportunity to catch this program over the last year 
broadcast on uh, KZNU Radio. That opportunity is uh, soon going to come to a close, like as of the close of this show. And uh, no, my program is not going dark, but it will no longer be airing on 1450. And this, don't please don't don't take that personal. That's this is the nature of radio. Things change, but uh, the podcast version of this program and and it's still going out to various networks as well. It's still available. The only difference is if you're if you're used to hearing it on the radio, you might want to uh, consider subscribing to the podcast version. And I would still welcome you to be a part of my audience. And please reach out to me through my website, thebrianheidshow.com. There's plenty of ways to, to communicate with me as well as to subscribe to my show notes, etc. So, little changes in the wind. Just thought you should know about it. But uh, we'll continue to move boldly forward. And who knows? Who knows? Perhaps uh, perhaps other avenues are, are opening up. So, I don't talk too much about January 6th, but, uh, but I am going to come back to it today because I believe that this is an event, and in particularly the January 6th committee, is a, a circus of sorts that's being used to justify not only intense growth on the part of the federal government and its uh, enforcement apparatus, but it's something that's being aimed at average people like you and me who do not agree with what the ruling class in Washington, D.C. is cooking up for us. And I, I would not count myself as a diehard Trump supporter. I think he was a far better president than what we have right now. And I certainly don't think he was the monster that we were told he would be before he was elected in 2016. Now, having said that, I don't believe that uh, the fate of our republic depends on can we elect him in 2024. But I believe the January 6th committee is, is ex- in existence for the purpose of trying to find some way to file criminal charges and perhaps jail Trump to prevent any possibility of him mounting a challenge to them in 2024. And I think he probably would beat them, assuming that uh, they don't have some kind of uh, control of the election systems, which I think is still very much in question. But if January 6th really was as bad as the political class claims that it was, why do they have to keep lying about it? And this is where I turn to Julie Kelly, who writes for AmericanGreatness.com, one of the biggest lies is the armed mob. And you'll hear the media do this too. This is, you know, let's, let's throw the media under the bus while we're at it. There, there is nothing about the January 6th, 6th committee that the media is, is willing to question. They just breathlessly repeat the talking points and, you know, go out there with their memo. Oh, yes, the armed mob that, that seized the Capitol and almost toppled our government on January 6th. Was it really an armed mob? Let's see what Julie Kelly has to say. She says, to hear Andrew McCarthy tell it, Donald Trump's raucous speech at the Ellipse on January 6th ended with a Braveheart moment when the president beseeched his throng of weapon-wielding supporters to attack government leaders at the U.S. Capitol that afternoon. In fact, she says, last week's testimony by Cassidy Hutchinson, the junior White House aide who made a number of dubious claims under oath, has been accepted as fact by most of the corporate news media and never-Trump pundits, including McCarthy. She actually... Talked about that in a column that's linked there. In response to leading questions by Representative Liz Cheney of, of uh, Wyoming, Hutchinson claimed both the president and chief of stack Mark, staff rather Mark Meadows knew by mid-morning that the crowd was filled with armed supporters. But Trump nonetheless urged those self-styled soldiers to head to Capitol Hill as the joint session of Congress was underway. 
in a clip of her closed-door testimony to the committee. The loquacious aide met three times with committee investigators, talking for roughly 20 hours, relying at times on a thick folder of notes. Hutchinson ticked off a list of weapons allegedly confiscated by 10 a.m. as rally-goers passed through security screeners known as magnetometers. Reading from a page in her binder, Hutchinson recalled a conversation with Deputy White House Chief of Staff Tony Ornato, who described the cash to Meadows and her, I remember Tony mentioning knives, guns in the forms of pistols and rifles, um, bear spray, body armor, spears and flagpoles, she said. Now, she further stated that Ornato informed the president about the seized weapons, but Trump dismissed any concern and instead instructed his team to take the effing mags away, referring to the magnetometers, Hutchinson claimed. Cheney added more flair to the dramatic scenario by playing radio transmissions she said were obtained by the D.C. Metro Police Department. One dispatcher reported three men walking down the street in fatigues carrying AR-15 at 14th and Independence. Another recording indicated a man with a rifle was seen near the ellipse. Now, Julie Kelly says, look, serious questions, serious, setting aside serious questions as to why these men weren't found and arrested, given their close proximity, not only to the president, but numerous government officials present at the rally that morning. If true, how is that Trump's fault? Why did Cheney assume the alleged armed men were Trump supporters? She had no other identifying information, like, say, an arrest record detailing the motive of the suspects. So who were they? Were their weapons even real, loaded? Further, the idea of armed marauders freely roaming downtown D.C. with impunity is absurd. The place was crawling with both undercover and uniformed agents from multiple law enforcement agencies. Julie Kelly says the implausibility of Cheney's story did not discourage the January 6th echo chamber from running with it, full bore. Trump knew in the moments before he took to the podium to give his rambunctious ellipse speech that the mob was armed to the teeth, including with firearms, McCarthy wrote in the New York Post on June 29th. He knew an armed mob would be headed to the hill, yet he intentionally whipped them up with his speech. What's more, he intended personally to lead the protest march. The patent purpose was to intimidate. Now, Julie Kelly says the January 6th committee posted a tweet shortly after Hutchinson's performance claiming Trump wanted to go to the Capitol with an armed mob despite warnings not to do so from his advisors. Representative Eric Swalwell, always the victim, whined that lawmakers were sitting ducks on January 6th. The leader of the executive branch instructed an armed, dangerous mob to attack the legislative branch. Swalwell tweeted, we will not move on from this. We will not forget this. We will not forgive this. His colleague, Representative Pramila Jayapal, demanded Trump be sent to jail for attempting an armed coup. Now, of course, it would only have required the most cursory search to discover whether a mob of Trump supporters armed to the teeth, including with firearms, actually existed. If a conservative influencer had any interest in being honest with his readers rather than acting as a reckless propaganda organ for Cheney and House Democrats, said influencer would quickly learn that a total of 13 people have been arrested for firearms violations related to the events of January 6th. Only six face firearms charges in the Justice Department's capital breach probe. Of the three, or of the six rather, three men, Guy Reffitt, Mark Mazza, and Mark Ibrahim, are accused of being on Capitol grounds on January 6th. None entered the building. Ibrahim was an agent with the Drug Enforcement Agency and was off-duty at the time. Neither Refit nor Maza attempted to use their firearm on January 6th. Both were arrested months after the protest. Well, isn't that interesting? 
Law enforcement found firearms in the truck of Lonnie Kaufman, who parked his vehicle near Capitol Hill that morning after driving to D.C. from Alabama on the evening of January 6th. Now, it's unclear whether Kaufman attended Trump's speech, and there are no photographs of Kaufman, Kaufman rather, on Capitol grounds. When police confronted 70-year-old Kaufman, they found two loaded pistols on his person. He's been sentenced to 46 months in prison after pleading guilty to two firearms violations. Christopher Alberts was arrested around 7.30 p.m. on Capitol grounds after police discovered a 9mm pistol in his pocket. Alberts' charging documents don't mention his attendance at Trump's speech or at the protest earlier in the day. Also, police found guns and ammunition on January 7th in a vehicle belonging to Cleveland Meredith Jr., but he was not accused of bringing any weapons to Trump's speech or to the Capitol the day before. Meredith pleaded guilty to one count of interstate communications of a threat. So, just to restate for the willfully ignorant in the back row, back row rather, out of hundreds of thousands of Trump supporters in Washington, D.C., and a few thousand who then walked to the Capitol, only six have been charged for possessing firearms and one left his guns in his vehicle. That's assuming that Alberts is actually a Trump supporter. What about the so-called militia groups who breached the Capitol that day? Well, roughly uh, three dozen members of the Proud Boys and Oath Keepers face criminal charges, including the rare count of seditious conspiracy. Not a single member of Oath Keepers has been charged with a weapons offense, let alone a firearms violation. In fact, those who traveled to D.C. with guns were very careful, as the court documents prove, to leave weapons at their hotel rooms in Virginia rather than take them with them to the Capitol on January 6th. So about that whole armed mob mentality, there was no such thing as an armed mob, let alone one armed to the teeth with firearms. As Julie Kelly explains, it's just another long string of fire of falsehoods, rather, fabricated by the regime and dutifully echoed in the news media and conservative opinion sites. If January 6th was as bad as they are saying or claiming it was, why do they have to keep lying about it? This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I'd like to give some special recognition to Dr. Ward Wagner and Dixie Chiropractic. I have appreciated their sponsorship these past few months, and I have it on very good authority, as in I have heard personally from listeners who have gone to see Dr. Wagner, and they've all come back with glowing reviews. In fact, uh, one, one of my good friends, Dave, tells me that uh, Dr. Wagner is a miracle worker. And you know what? As a guy whose back just went out on him yesterday, that's me. Uh, my back went out when I was doing some laundry yesterday. Uh, man, I'll tell you, I, I, I wish I lived in closer proximity because I would be one of the first people in line to go see Dr. Wagner and, and get my back set right. Bottom line, though, is if you need chiropractic care, if you're dealing with pain from car accident injuries or uh, neuropathy or you have a bulging disc, if you live in southern Utah, this is the guy you should go see. Dr. Ward Wagner at Dixie Chiropractic. There's a link, DixieChiro.com. Just click on today's show notes and it'll take you right to his website. All right, let's take a moment here to talk about what we could do to fix our culture, okay? We can all see the problems. What are the solutions, though? Annie Holmquist, writing for intellectualtakeout.org, suggests that what our culture needs right now, more than anything, is strong, intact families. By the way, I don't disagree. I think she's right. 
And, and taking it one step further, how do you get strong, intact families? Well, Annie says one of the things we need to do is stop telling singles to try online dating. Here's how she puts it. She says the wedding industry is booming in the post-COVID world, yet the fuss over wedding flowers, gowns, and photographers can't cover up an ever-growing reality. And that is a large portion of the American adult population is single. Nearly half of Americans over the age of 18 land in this category, according to the Census Bureau. And 62% of that group have never been married at all. So that means there's a high chance every one of us still has a friend or two in the dating market. And of course, being the helpful friends that we are, we've probably asked them one of the, or some form of the following question. Well, have you tried online dating? Now, Annie says online dating, which 15 to 20 years ago was viewed as the last resort for those who couldn't find a mate in the real world, has now become a standard way to meet a significant other. But while the acceptability of online dating has soared, interest in it may be souring. Indeed, it seems possible that the days of online matchmaking are numbered, according to Lucy Cavendish at The, Gardening, at the Guardian. Rather. Now, Cavendish herself, a middle-aged divorcee, decided to dip her toe into the online dating world, but found, to her surprise, that many singles view the apps with skepticism. She wrote, People are jaded and fed up. No one seems to know what they want, and trying to meet anyone has proved nigh impossible. Part of the problem is that, as Cavendish put it, no one really knows how to date, what to say, where to meet, or recognize if there's chemistry, so we give up, leaving us baffled and frustrated. Annie Holmquist says, why the confusion and frustration? She says, one answer lies in Neil Postman's book, Amusing Ourselves to Death. Writing in 1985, Postman couldn't foresee the huge role the Internet and smartphones would play in our everyday lives and relationships. But he did see the problems that television caused in those same areas. And therein lie some important revelations for our time. Postman wrote, television is our culture's principal mode of knowing about itself. Therefore, and this is the critical point, how television stages the world becomes the model for how the world is properly to be staged. So put another way, what we see through our phones and screens today becomes our model for how to stage ourselves in dating or other social media profiles. Instagram influencer X poses with duck lips and is constantly jumping from boyfriend to boyfriend. We do the same. Public figure Y wears a man bun and tight jeans and waxes eloquent on how it's important to recognize his white male privilege. We follow suit. Postman continues. It's not merely that on the television screen, entertainment is the metaphor for all discourse. It's that off the screen, the same metaphor prevails. In courtrooms, classrooms, operating rooms, boardrooms, churches, even airplanes, Americans no longer talk to each other. They entertain each other. They do not exchange ideas. They exchange images. They do not argue with propositions. They argue with good looks, celebrities, and commercials. The message of television as a metaphor is not only that all the world is a stage, but that stage is located in Las Vegas, Nevada. Now, Annie Holmquist says the reality is, when we live in the world of the screen, when everyone tries to portray themselves like Kim Kardashian or Justin Bieber or some other public figure, everything is a sham. Real life is not like what's portrayed on the screen. And sham is the last thing that must happen in a dating relationship. In dating, it's not a matter so much of whether the other person is pretty, ha pretty, handsome, or smart, or checks every box on your list of must-haves for a spouse. Instead, she says it's a matter of whether you can do life with that person, 
pulling in the same direction, helping the other when he or she struggles, or humbly admitting when you yourself fail. And you can't know if you can do life with that person unless you move away from the screen and spend time with each other, face-to-face and side-by-side in the everyday matters of life. In that sense, it's encouraging to hear Cavendish report that more singles are ditching the dating apps and choosing in-person meetups instead. And hearing that those singles want to meet face-to-face should give us one more idea regarding what we can do to help rebuild the culture. Instead of simply suggesting that singles should try online dating, why not help them out in other ways? Hold backyard barbecues and invite singles you know to participate, mixing in married couples with children at the event as well to smooth the awkwardness and provide a model for the singles to follow. Or if you don't have the bandwidth to host singles in your home, invite them to church or concerts or sporting events. Get to know them yourself, asking them what they're looking for in a mate and then keeping an eye out for those qualities in other singles of the opposite sex. Strong, intact families make up the core of culture. But those families will never start unless young people can get over the hurdle of figuring out how to meet each other and bond over something other than a screen. So why not start smoothing the way for that to happen? I know, you're probably thinking to yourself, I don't want to be a matchmaker. Well, I don't either. But at the same time, I think that uh, I, I, I have admiration for those people who, you know, when they they meet somebody and they say, ooh, I would love for you to meet my friend. It's not so much a matter of I'm going to push you guys together and then uh, revel in it. This is not the Michael Scott approach to I'm a matchmaker. Look, I did this. I made these people, you know, connect. But I'm a big believer that, that sometimes people come into our orbit and there's purpose behind it. As in, I think there's divine purpose. And I get it. Some people are going to think that sounds superstitious. Well, so be it. All I know is If you're paying attention to the people who come into your orbit and you sometimes pay attention to the timing with which that happens, you might be be surprised at just how often there is something more than just, oh, well, what a happy coincidence. And I really like Annie Holmquist's suggestion of, you know, instead of, you know, I just got to find me, you know, the the lady's got to be this hot. She has to, you know, fit these dimensions, can't weigh anything more than this. I remember a scout leader that I had back when I was a teenager. Um, you know, I, I don't remember what the discussion was. Somehow we were talking about, yeah, when I get married, man, I'm settling for nothing less than a 10. You know, the girl I marry is going to be so good looking. And uh, I remember our scout leader telling us, guys, you're all focused on how she's going to look. But I'm going to tell you right now, that is the least important thing. And when you find the person that you really want to be with for the rest of your life, that's not going to be what matters. Now, I'm, I'm going to tell you something very rudely. At, at the time, our thought was, he's just saying that because his wife is fat. But you know what? As time has gone on, and as we've all become fatter, <laughs> as time and gravity has taken its toll on us, I recognize the wisdom in what he was saying. And if, if you can find a person who you really connect with at more than just a, wow, she's hot kind of level, that may be somebody that you can actually spend time with and, and grow with. And, and the, the bottom line is, you know, everybody's going to change. Everybody's going to get older. Some people fight it a little harder than others. I don't mean any offense to those of you who've had, you know, extensive plastic surgery, but I think there's something very admirable about people who just choose to age gracefully. Take it as it comes. Character is going to count more than looks. 
And if tough times are approaching, character and capability are going to count more than those good looks as well. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Again, my thanks to HSLAmmo.com. Got a lot of love and respect for Spencer Worthington. He is the founder of HSL Ammo. And I appreciate him having been a sponsor of this program over the last few months. Truly a great guy. And he has done a lot for, uh, not just for me, but for also for anybody who is in the shooting sports or learning about the shooting sports. I've had the chance to see him, uh, actually watch him at work, uh, helping to instruct new shooters and to encourage them. Had the chance a little over a year ago to go spend some time on the range at Rowdy's Range and just was so impressed with uh, with what what a great uh, what a great guy Spencer is and and how much he was helping people who were there for the very first time just learning how to shoot a gun which can be intimidating but uh, yeah I would encourage you if you're looking for ammunition HSL Ammo is a great place to go there's a website you can go to hslammo.com and again uh, my my love and respect to Spencer and my gratitude to him for being a sponsor of this program so, I'm going to state an obvious truth here, but, uh, you know, don't, don't knock yourself out agreeing with me too much here. Nobody aspires to be a sucker, right? When you realize you've been suckered, nobody ever feels good about that. Oh, well, I guess I got suckered on that. Hooray. No, we, we feel terrible. Got a great article here from Thomas Harrington about how many among us are suckers and how we're all at risk of being uh, bamboozled and manipulated by skilled opportunists. He also talks about how we can protect ourselves. He says, sucker. In early adolescence, there are a few epithets that cut as deeply into one's self of sense, wor- self, sense of self-worth rather, as this one. At a time when you're desperately trying to figure out how the world really works, having this word hurled your way is a stark reminder that you are still pretty clueless and thus not up to the fundamental adult task of protecting your best interests from predatory practices. But he says not everything that's that's cruel and hurtful is without value. Knowing you've been had can be an opportunity for reflection. And here he goes further. To not reflect rigorously upon the ways in which others fooled you for their own ends in the past is to remain in a state of perpetual immaturity wherein you cede much of your own agency to people who, however nice or authoritative, or authoritative they might seem or even be, can't ever respond to your particular needs anywhere near as well as can a truly mindful version of yourself. And yet, he says, most everywhere I look, at least in the relatively prosperous subculture I'm lucky enough to inhabit, I see COVID suckers, suckers who moreover exhibit little or no curiosity about how they've been duped. Indeed, many seem to exhibit a rather tender veneration toward those who've defrauded them. For example, while having lunch at a Chinese restaurant yesterday, he says, I overheard a conversation at a nearby table between six mature and self-evidently well-educated people in which each and every one complained with great exasperation how they'd done everything right when it came to masks, social distancing, and vaccinations, and still got COVID. No sooner had this round robin of complaints ended than they began talking about the urgent need to get further boosted against the deadly plague. Question the policies or the efficacy of the vaccines. Call into question the quality of the information they'd been provided about the virus and vaccines. Nope. Just double and triple down on more of the same. 
and get suckered again. Now, he says, I have to admit my first reaction when I hear and see people acting like this is to write off the whole bunch of them as ignorant clowns. And who knows, maybe that is, in the end, the only practical solution. But even if I do banish them from my precinct of concern, an intellectual problem remains. Why have so many otherwise high-functioning adult people been such suckers for the lies issued by government corporate behemoths over the last two and a half years? Well, he says the reasons are many, but I think all of them are are conjoined by a central cultural condition or problem, which is the growing incapacity for generating a a sensorial and social understanding of the world around them. He says we're animals, and like other animal species, are gifted at birth with an enormous storehouse of accumulated sociobiological knowledge. Now, true, some of it's of little application, application rather in the modern world. However, much of it remains incredibly useful when it comes to enhancing our, char- our chances of living relatively contented and existentially successful lives. Perhaps the most central of these instinctual skills is learning to carefully size up the moral and intellectual reliability of the people around us. You ever watch dogs check each other out when passing on the sidewalk? Well, humans have long done the same thing. And what starts as an instinct in our case is gradually honed down through the careful observations that only extended and repeated social contact in places such as the dinner table, the school lunchroom, or corner bar can provide. It's through repeated exposure to these and many sites of intense social observation that we learn how to read body language. Divine the secret code of the eyes, the enormous human capacity for insincere language and deceit, themselves survival tools in certain contexts. And on a brighter note, irony, which by foregrounding the multiple layers of linguistic expression, greatly enhances our ability to recognize and resolve complex life problems. Good stuff, right? Yes, unless, of course, your life goals revolve around controlling others or getting them to pine for things that they don't actually need but whose consumption will make you rich and powerful. For such above, or for such people rather, the continued development in the population of the social observation skills outlined briefly above is nothing short of a nightmare. That's why they do everything in their power to cripple people's acquisition of them. Now this is important. This is what keeps us from recognizing the manipulators and the Machiavellians among us. How? Well, through the nonstop flood of media messaging, desi- messaging rather designed to induce, both through its clearly unassimilable volume and entropic forms of delivery, personal disorientation, and from there, grave internal doubts about the skills of social discernment most were born with and have hopefully further honed along the way. The culmination of the process from their end is the formation of a mass of individuals that possess little or no trust in its inherent powers of observation and logic and that are thus largely dependent upon the opinions of experts spouting elite amenable ideas when navigating the most basic life issues and conflicts. And he says, if you don't believe how far advanced this breakdown of street smarts has gone in the population, take a look at the pathetically infantile level of questions posed at Cora each day. Viewed in this context, do you really think it was an accident that known to be useless measures against spreading the SARS-CoV-2 virus centered precisely on practices like masks, social distancing and generational segregation that grossly inhibit children's ability to hone their aptitude for social and interpersonal discernment during the limited time window they have for such developments? It's a good point. The further one goes up the educational ladder, the more severe this process of sociocultural deracination gets. For all the talk of democracy and radical social change that takes place on campus, 
Today's universities are deeply hierarchical and often emotionally barren places where the development of individual forms of socio-empirical intelligence is not only not supported, but openly disdained. Readily filling the gap left by the non-pursuit of these organic and often deeply humanizing forms of knowing are highly abstract and largely unproven policy desideratum, enforced through diktats and sanctions issued by chairs, deans, and provosts, or by the more important movers and shakers in one's field of professional specialization. So in a context like this, the rhetoric of tolerance and the pains to the uh, importance of free and unfettered inquiry become mere accessories to what everybody knows but no one will admit is the real object of the game, and that's the pursuit of power or a recognizable alignment with its known policy claims. Now, this ingrained schizophrenia regarding the true nature of the professional self is probably why so many academics find it nearly impossible to acknowledge, never mind apologize for, the naked rage and aggression that drive their ever more frequent campaigns of personal destruction against others. It's also probably why so many physicians are ready to sign off on treatments whose underlying science and clinical effectiveness they know little of. Might rules, and beyond a bit of florid rhetoric in the case of humanities scholars, they all know this and internally embrace it. He says, we live in a time when powerful forces wielding very powerful new informational weapons seek to place a wedge between ourselves and practices which have long been essential to the search for self-knowledge, social meaning, and the ability to promote and safeguard human dignity. And the speed with which these weapons have been deployed and have insinuated themselves into our daily lives have left many of us dazed and confused. And history shows that when social confusion is fomented in this way, people often remit their intellectual and moral sovereignty to whatever nearby force appears to be most powerful and in control of the situation. And thus it's come to pass among millions of rank-and-file citizens during the past two-plus years. Let's face it, these millions of people have been suckered, suckered by shameless leaders into giving up hard-won freedoms, their livelihoods, and their bodily sovereignty. Now, luckily for us, empirical reality has a way of taking vengeance on those who construct castles in the air and force others to make effusive statements about the solidity of their non-existent foundations. So, it's going to be this way with the elite fantasists, fanaticists, I'm going to try that one more time, the elite fantasists and the see-no-evil disciples in due time. His point is, They've suckered many people over the last couple of years, but perhaps no one quite as completely as themselves. And for their less powerful victims who've recognized their previous naivete, there's still the possibility of redemption. But for those comfortable who continue to sequester themselves in their self-constructed house of lies, the fall, when it comes, is likely to be sudden, cruel, and definitive. This is one of the reasons why I'm such an adamant... uh, proponent of Think for Yourself. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. And we are back. Just got to give one more shout out here, and this is to the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. Heather and her husband, John, have been uh, wonderful supporters of this program. And I really appreciate everything that they have done to, uh, to help me to get broader reach as well as to, to uh, find other sponsors to come on board and, and keep this program going. Um, they are there to take care of you. Heather will take care of you with the mortgages that, that you need, whether it's a VA loan or a you know, reverse mortgage, whatever it may be. 
If you have need of a home loan, I would ask you, please, if you're in the state of Utah or Idaho, reach out to Heather Turner and her team at Patriot Home Mortgage. She is a wonderful person. She'll do a great job for you. Very conscientious, very experienced. And I just I have so much appreciation for everything that uh, she has done as, as one of my premier sponsors long term. All right, couple things, a couple of uh, articles I want to share with you. Um, one is, uh, I'm going to do this one first here. It's kind of a quick one from James Howard Kunstler. This guy's no nonsense. Now, sometimes he uses potty language, so I'm going to warn you, if, you're, if bad language offends you, um, you better brace yourself. But holy cow, does this guy have a great take on what's happening in the world. And, and he's very straightforward in, in his recommendations of, you know, what do we do? We have a great endeavor in front of us. And that's what his latest article published on lewrockwell.com points to. James uh, Howard Kunstler says, The birthday of the Republic, this birthday of the Republic, rather, we are on track to going medieval, or at least something that rhymes with it. He says, I wish I had a time machine. I would teleport a small delegation of Ben Franklin, Tom Jefferson, and Button Gwinnett from their sweltering labors at Independence Hall, and then known as the Pennsylvania State House. Actually, I don't think Thomas Jefferson was there for the... uh, at least for the Constitution, nonetheless, from uh, to, to a drag queen story hour hosted by a little Miss Hot Mess, the people's drag queen, reading from her best-selling book, The Hips, on the drag queen goes swish, swish, swish to a room full of six-year-old offspring birthed by America's current progressive ruling elite. So he, he would teleport the founding fathers back to drag queen or to drag queen story hour, <clears throat> and here he would explain, this is what it has come to. I wonder what their reaction would be. James Howard Kunstler says, Have today's elites in our country marinated in social justice and frantically signaling their goodness and virtue gone perhaps a tad too far in their quest to liberate the populace from boundaries previously established for human behavior? It's one thing, you know, to throw off the onerous yoke of a British king and his agents with their vexing taxes, despotic harassments, abuses, and usurpations. But it's perhaps another thing, empowering children to think themselves to bethink themselves monomaniacs of sexual confusion, years before they're mentally equipped to divine the conundrums of sex. What, after all, is a hot mess? Well, Google's top search answer from the Oxford Languages website defines hot mess thusly, a person or thing that is spectacularly unsuccessful or disordered, especially one that is a source of peculiar fascination. James Howard Kunstler says, okay, I see. This metaphor signifies what the ruling elites would like our nation to become. And more generally, Western Civ, that agglomeration of fusty creeds, shop-worn traditions, oppressive laws, dubious virtues, and racist arts. Mission accomplished then. On July 4th of 2022, America is a hot mess. But exactly. Are we not now spectacularly unsuccessful and disordered in body, mind, polity, culture, mores, convictions, and aspirations? What is functioning in America these days? Absolutely nothing. Say it again, to quote a song lyric of my bygone youth when our project in Vietnam had gone off the rails. Of course, that was then, and this is now. And Kunstler says, back then, say 1970, we were the exuberant avatar of modernity and the rest of the world was still a little groggy from World War II. In that America, a man could easily support a family. We never gave a thought to our oil supply and the doctor would see you now. But he says, this birthday of the Republic, we're on track to going medieval, or at least something that rhymes with it. And he says, I'm regretful as anyone to leave so much baggage behind, but frankly, it's been a long time since all the fun, fun, fun was over and Daddy took the T-bird away. 
Daddy himself is gone, along with all the representations of him. Donald Trump tried to play the role in a movie called The Years Before COVID-19, but the critics savaged him. Anyone who dares try to be daddy in America now will be me too and j 6 to a fare the well, we've been warned. In your new world order of Bill Gates and the Schwabenklaus' great reset, we're all expected to be a hot mess, so the exterminations can proceed without resistance. James Howard Kunstler says, I, for one, refuse to comply with all that insolent wickedness and urge you to join with me in making something decent, honorable, and workable in the vast salvage yard that America will be when we expel the degenerate maniacs who broke it to pieces. You do not have to be a hot mess. You can, for instance, be a man. Or, another instance, be a woman. These binaries of human reproduction can produce new humans. A man, a woman, and children will comprise a family, a good start in rebuilding the organism called a society. Now, he says the chief duty of men and women in this future will be doing everything possible to ensure that their children do not become hot messes. Their duties beyond that entail the search for purpose, meaning, and happiness, and building institutions that support those ends. We can start with the language we use amongst ourselves to make sense of who we are and where we are. Our language must have a rigorous correlation with reality, which makes it possible to determine what things are true and what are not true. He says, the time may soon be at hand when it's possible to tell who is speaking the truth and who is not. A battle may ensue over this, and those on the side of truth will prevail. Consider these propositions as you flip your burgers and host your malty brews. Think of the men who gathered at Independence Hall 246 years ago and the trepidation they felt, facing the unknown as they signed their names, pledged their fortunes, and committed their sacred honor to a great endeavor. And by the way, I apologize. I was thinking he was uh, talking about the the Constitution in the first part of this. But no, he's talking about the signing of the Declaration. So what is the great endeavor that you and I have before us? Okay, I don't think we're being tasked with necessarily writing a new Declaration of Independence, although I have heard some pretty credible calls for people to come up with a declaration of their own, of their own personal independence. And I've talked about this before. In fact, I, I had to, had my friend Tyler come on the show and, and share more or less a, a list of the things for which he stands and why those are some of the, the fundamental, foundational principles of his life. Now, I know this is going to sound a lot like, hey, are you asking us to do homework? Because I'm really not down with homework. But all I'm going to ask you to do is consider, if you if you want to be part of the solution, if you really want to turn things toward the better, you have got to be willing to know where you stand and who you are. And that's a conversation that most people really haven't had with themselves. And it's, it's not because they're dumb or, it's be, or because they're, you know, just incapable of, of doing it. Most of us are just busy. We have other things that are competing for our attention that have taken priority. But if you see what's happening and you recognize, man, this is, this is not sustainable. And in fact, it's destroying all the things that, uh, that make our lives livable. At some point, you got to wonder, am I going to be part of the solution or am I just going to, you know, bow my head and go along with it because it's easier than, than making waves? I'm going to suggest that the fact that you're even listening to a program like this, which is very admittedly out of step with much of what mainstream society is about today, that should be your answer. You're already thinking outside the box. You're already recognizing that 
there's more to this than just simply passively taking whatever comes your way or trying to hide within the crowd so that you don't have to deal with it. Can I be bold here for a moment? May I have your permission to to say a couple things that will make you uncomfortable? It's not an accident that you have the awareness that you have right now. It's not an accident that you were born and have come to maturity and a state of recognition at this point in time and at this point in history. I'm going to really push for broke here, and I'll make you really uncomfortable. I believe God has put his finger on you and me. That as individuals, each in our own unique way, there is some kind of a difference or purpose that we are supposed to carry out and to make in this life. And it may seem small in the grand scheme of things, like you're not going to be in the running for a Nobel Prize, but it's essential that we do this. The world at large isn't really going to know about it, but that's not what counts. What counts is there's a difference that we can and should be making that we were born to make, and we need to rise to that occasion. And to do that is going to require being out of step with much of society, being comfortable with suffering for your beliefs, being willing to sacrifice some of the things you would really like to have or be able to do right now for things you'll be grateful that you did later. This is the pattern that the founding generation set for us, by the way. We don't need to sit there and worship, you know, around a pedestal that we place them on. Oh, look how great they are. We need to become the kind of individuals that they were. Bold, fearless, driven by truth, driven by conviction. And I would add, with a firm reliance on divine providence, because that's really what made the difference. This is The Brian Hyde Show.